Today we have the privilege, as you see down front here, we have the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together. That's one of the ordinances that the Lord Jesus instituted himself for his churches to carry out all the way until he returns, right? And each time we take the Lord's Supper together, there's a lot of things happening, whether you realize it or not. But, and they're all kind of happening at once, but one of them is certainly this, that we are proclaiming and physically demonstrating the truths of the gospel to one another. And I think it's important for us as Christians to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again, both to ourselves and to anyone else who would hear or see us doing so. The Lord thought it was important, right? So we should as well. I bet you've heard me say it before, but I I love that phrase that a man named Paul Tripp uses in some of his writings. He says, we have gospel amnesia. We can hear the truths of the gospel over and over and over again, whether it be in a church service or a Sunday school class or a podcast or in our own personal Bible reading, and yet we can still forget it. And I don't mean that we forget it in the sense that we can't remember the informational aspects of it. I mean, it's not like we say, shoot, I remember Jesus did something, but I, I, I can't remember what it is. It's not that type of forgetting. It's not a memory recall problem. The forgetting that I'm speaking of is a different type of forgetting because here's what we do. We just fail to meditate on the truths of the gospel like we should. And therefore, instead of being right here in the forefront, it's somewhere back there. And if it's back there, behind a whole lot of other stuff, we probably are not going to live in a way that reflects the gospel. And we certainly won't be able to worship God all the time like he calls us to do. Our minds are such that we need to be inundated. We need to be saturated with the truths of the gospel for it really to take root. It's a central thing, not a something on the peripheral periphery out here. It's central. That's one reason I want to just recommend all these good books. It's just another way to saturate your mind with the truth of God. It's going to feed your soul. So I commend that to you. That's massively important. So, today, before we take the Lord's Supper, let's meditate on this. Let's consider a particular aspect of the gospel together. You see my long title of the message up there. Um, It's kind of like one of those Puritan titles. If you read any Puritan books, their titles are like paragraphs, (laughs) So maybe I'm in good company here, but um, let's, let's focus on these two aspects that you see in blue there on the screen. His active obedience, the, that is his as in Jesus's, Jesus's active obedience and his passive obedience. Maybe you've never heard those terms before, or maybe if you have, 
I hope that it will just be a reminder to you and an encouragement to you as we just try to think about exactly what Christ has done to secure our salvation, okay? So please don't zone out if terms like this seem nerdy to you or something. These truths are, are absolutely essential to our salvation if we want to be precise in thinking about what Jesus did. You and I, whether we know those terms or not, you and I could never be saved without both aspects, Jesus' active obedience and his passive obedience. So if those terms sound too classroomy to you, I just hope you'll bear with me and um, just ask God to help you grasp what they mean. Because if you do, if we do, we will have a greater appreciation of the work of Christ. And you know, if we, can impre- if we can increase our appreciation of the work of Christ, then we'll worship Him more deeply. And isn't that what we're here for? Not just here, but isn't that what we're on this earth for? That's the entire goal, to worship the Lord, to bring Him glory. So, with all that said, let's just try to define what we mean a little bit by active and passive obedience. Those two terms, they're not really parts of Christ's work. Instead, they're kind of two terms that would differently describe the totality of his work. And I think a good backdrop for understanding the active and passive obedience of Christ is just to think about for a minute What does the Lord require of us? What does God require of us in order to be right with him? What are the requirements? Well, first of all, he requires perfect holiness. He requires that we be totally righteous. In short, he demands perfection. You commit just one sin, and you're what? You're guilty. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and to do them. We cannot get to heaven without being perfectly righteous. That, of course, poses a big problem for us, doesn't it? We're sinners. So how are we going to be perfectly righteous? We'll get to that in just a bit. But another thing God requires of us is for our sins to be atoned for. That again is a big problem for us. Because what kind of atonement, what kind of punishment is actually due to us? It's death and hell, right? Our our sins don't deserve a little slap on the wrist or a little scolding. We actually deserve death. We deserve the worst kind of death, spiritual death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So just to summarize God's requirements, we must pay for our sin 
as well as become perfectly righteous. Now, how in the world is that going to happen? If we didn't know anything about the gospel and we just heard those requirements, what would you think? I guess we'd be forced to say, well, I guess there's no hope then. I can't pull that off. Nobody can. Enter Christ's active and passive obedience. When we speak of Christ's active obedience, we mean that Christ himself has kept all of the law of God. He is perfectly sinless and righteous and holy. And when we speak of Christ's passive obedience, we mean that he took the punishment for sin. And it wasn't his own sins, right? Because the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus was sinless. So what Christ's active and passive obedience means for us is that even though we couldn't fulfill God's demands ourselves, Christ did. And God is willing to count or impute what Christ has done, both in his active and passive obedience, he's willing to impute it to our account. That is the bread and butter of the gospel itself. That Christ has done what we could not. And God has imputed all of that to our account. And when we come to God in repentance and faith in his substitute, the Lord Jesus, God treats us as if we had done everything that Jesus had done. In other words, he sees our sins totally paid for by Christ's death in our place, and he treats Christ's righteousness as well as our own, as if we lived the life that he lived. Listen to John Murray for a minute, wonderful Scottish theologian. If I could do a Scottish accent, I would. Don't do it very well. But listen to him describe the active and passive obedience of Christ. This is from his very famous and excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Listen to what he says. He says, The truth expressed rests upon the recognition that the law of God has both penal sanctions, in other words, penalties for sin, and positive demands or obedience to God's commands. It demands not only the full discharge of its precepts, but also the infliction of penalty for all infractions and shortcomings. It is this twofold demand of the law of God which is taken into account when we speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Christ as the vicar or representative of his people, he came under the curse and condemnation due to sin. And he also fulfilled the law of God in all of its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal 
and the preceptive requirement of God's law. The passive obedience refers to the former, the active obedience to the latter, end quote. That is well said. I wish I could give that to you and have you read it on your own a few times and ponder it a little while. Another way we can look at it is like this. Christ died in our place, and in that way, he has atoned for all of our sins passively. But if that were all, that would just leave us in this state of kind of moral neutrality, right? We haven't done anything positively righteous yet. In other words, we've had our sins atoned for, but we haven't followed God's commands positively. But Christ handles that for us as well because Christ lived the life of perfect obedience that we could never live. Even if we each had a thousand lifetimes to try to do it, we'd mess it up every single time. So the gospel, in a nutshell, is is that, that God treats Christ's death as our death, thereby paying for all of our sins, and he treats Christ's life as our life, thereby crediting Christ's righteousness to our account. Isn't that wonderful, by the way? Does anybody find that wonderful? We need both of those. And God has provided both of those for us in Christ. So if we think about these things try to, and try to be very precise about it, we can see that God has done more for us in Christ than we may even realize, that we often don't think about. Even if we're a fairly mature Christian, sometimes these categories and these aspects of what God has done through Christ, sometimes they're just left kind of out there for the theologians or something, for the academics. But they're so rich for us to think about, but we ought not leave those things unpondered. What a shame to leave them unpondered because it brings us so much joy. So just for the next few minutes, I want us to look at a verse of Scripture that highlights what Jesus has done. And I hope it just, I hope it hits you like a ton of bricks this morning, really. Just in a fresh way, in other words, just to see what God has done in the gospel. And if you're outside of Christ today, whether you're here or listening to this later, I pray that you would just see how glorious the Lord Jesus is and how beautiful God's truth is. And know that you can get in on this, okay? So turn with me, if you're not already there, to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a classic text to demonstrate the truth that we've just introduced. Okay, It says this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become The righteousness of God. I'll read it one more time. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse contains, again, the gospel in a nutshell. Let's think about it. The first part says that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So this is going to highlight for us the passive obedience of Christ. These slides aren't going to be anything to help you take notes on. They're just going to be something to help you mentally remember, perhaps, or keep, keep your thoughts on track as I'm, as I'm preaching here. So the backdrop is this. Our sin demands punishment, right? The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. Uh, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That was Romans and Ezekiel. Two, two passages in Romans and Ezekiel, and we could throw in a ton of other ones if we had time. But this means that we are separated from God. Separated. The, the fellowship broken due to our sin. The, the rightness the peace that was once there in that relationship between God and men, severed. But here in our verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it shows us what God has done about that massive problem. And it is a massive problem, by the way. If sin has consequences, then we're in trouble, right? If sin separates us from God, there's a problem for us. If we're condemned due to our sin, we're in a bad spot. But in some of the sweetest words that could ever be read by a human being, we read, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin." who knew no sin. God has made it possible to put our sin onto Jesus, as it were, and have him bear the punishment instead of us. Wow. And sometimes we hear questions like, how can that happen? How can somebody's sin be transferred to another person? Isn't that wrong? of God to do that? Perhaps you've heard things like that or maybe even thought thoughts like that um, yourself at some point. But usually those type of questions, they presuppose a higher standard of right and wrong than God. And he has to somehow abide by that higher standard, but that's not reality, is it? This is God's world. This is my Father's world. We haven't sung that hymn in a while. Maybe we should sing it. This is my Father's world. He made it. Whatever He does is the standard. So what rule is there in God that says He can't transfer sins from us to Christ if He wants to do that? To be sure, we wouldn't do that from person to person in a court of law or something. We don't have the power or authority to transfer guilt to another person like that. Human to human, 
operations are wholly different operations than God to human operations, okay? We aren't talking about a human court of law here between two mere humans. We're talking about God's court of law, and we're talking about the eternal redemption of our souls. And so when we talk about that, God can do what he wills, right? Again, that lovely verse that I come back to often to encourage me about the power of our God. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And the truth be told, we ought to fall flat on our faces this morning and thank God that he deemed it valid and doable to transfer our sins to Christ. Because if that's off the table, then every single one of us is doomed to hell. God has set up his system of redemption in such a way that when he wants to, he can transfer sin to a substitute. And that's, just, that's not just a New Covenant or New Testament thing. That's an Old Testament thing as well. It was ingrained into the nation Israel all along throughout the entire law of Moses. Just think about the entire uh, sacrificial system that was instituted by God for that temporary time in history. He commanded them by the law of Moses to offer up these animal sacrifices for their sins. And so there's this thread from the beginning of the Bible to the end of something called imputation. It's when either the sins or the righteousness of one person is credited to someone else or something else. Like, for instance, we've gone over this one in a past communion service. In Leviticus 16, in that Day of Atonement ceremony, there's this goat. There's two goats there highlighted. One of them is called the scapegoat. And the priest would lay his hands on the head of, the, the, of that goat, of that scapegoat. And God would ceremonially, ceremonially transfer the sins of the people onto that goat. And then the goat would be sent out into the wilderness, never to return. Symbolizing what God has done with their sins. Totally got rid of them. And then the other goat in the ceremony was killed in the place of the sinner, making atonement for the sins of the people by blood. Both goats, though, foreshadow the work of God in Christ to take away our sin by a substitute. Or what about the the Passover in the Old Testament? We see the idea of a substitute very clearly there as well. And I recommended that book, Who is Jesus, um, by Greg Gilbert. Let me read you a quote from that book. He's talking about the Passover and how God had said that he was going to kill every firstborn male in every house in Egypt if they didn't have the blood of that sacrifice on their doorposts. So imagine with me just a minute. You're a Jewish family on that night. There's dad, there's mom, 
and we'll just throw out a number, there's four children. And let's say that one of them is a little boy. He's the firstborn of the house. His name is Joshua, okay? When that family killed their Passover lamb on that night in Egypt, it would be so that little Joshua would not have to die. Listen to the passage from this book, Who is Jesus? He says this, Seared into their minds and hearts would have been the power and meaning of the substitutionary sacrifice. Killing the lamb was not a clean affair. It was, a, it was visceral and bloody. The father would kneel down beside the animal, draw a knife, and slit the animal's throat. And blood would spurt out on the ground until the animal staggered and gagged and fell into death. And as it happened, every eye would have instinctively risen from the dying lamb to one little boy. And the whole family would know, this lamb is dying so that little Joshua here won't. The lamb is dying in Joshua's place. End quote. What a vivid image that is of God saving through substitution. So God really has set up this plan of redemption from eternity past to include this idea of substitution and imputation or crediting sins to a substitute when appropriate. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He's our lamb. Amazing. Jesus is walking toward John the Baptist one day in the Judean desert. And he points to Jesus. Nobody really knows who he was, I guess, at that time. And he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. What did he mean? He wasn't saying, hey, look at that guy. He looks like a lamb. <laughs> or look at that guy. He's as gentle as a lamb. He's as pure as a lamb. No, those people who were familiar with the Mosaic law and the whole sacrificial system would have understood the reference. John is talking about a sacrifice. Jesus is a walking sacrifice. He was using sacrificial language. There's the sacrifice for the sins of the world, he said. So our verse here, 2 Corinthians, says that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Focus on that second part with me now for a moment. Jesus had no sin of his own to pay for. He was perfectly sinless. Just like the Old Testament prescribed a spotless lamb for the sacrifice, that is what Jesus was. But it wasn't talking about his skin being spotless. It was talking about him being morally, spiritually spotless and pure. Perfectly holy. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And Hebrews 4 speaks of Jesus and it says he was without sin. 
over and over again. There's other examples too. So in the plan of God's redemption, this is how the passive obedience of Christ comes into play. God places our sin on Jesus and punishes him for it instead of us. And the word passive, by the way, just to explain, it doesn't mean he didn't do anything. It's not what passive means in this instance. It means that he'd allowed himself to be killed at the hands of sinners. He submitted himself. He laid down his life of his own accord, in other words. He suffered in our place. He took our sin and our punishment and our curse. Praise God. And some people might say, well, surely there's a catch. What do I have to do then? No catch. Just believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Praise God for Christ's passive obedience to die with our sins imputed to him. Now, let's think about Christ's active obedience. The active obedience of Christ. I'm not sure that slide is going to advance. Uh, Miss Denise, she's back there. She's our tech person today. Thank you for doing that. Technology lets me down sometimes. The active obedience of Christ. So God demands, he's taking care of our sin. Our sin gets imputed to Jesus. He pays for it. But also God demands perfection to be right with him. Heaven is not going to have any sin in it. Habakkuk 1 says God is too pure to look on sin. In heaven, there's only going to be perfectly righteous people. Here's the problem, right? There are none. There are no righteous people in themselves. So, what does that mean? Is heaven going to be like a ghost town or something? No. Far from it. It is filled with people, even right now, and will be filled more so by the end of the age with people who have been made righteous by God. They have been given righteousness as a gift. Now, how does God do that? Again, it's through that same idea of imputation. So in God's design, he can credit one person's righteousness to another person. That's exactly what he's done with Jesus. So just think about what he's done. Not in his death, per se, but in his life. Sometimes we say, Jesus died for me. That's true. That's excellent. But he also lived for you too. So think about that. How has Jesus lived? Again, we just said it, right? He, he lived a sinless life. There's not one commandment of God that he ever broke. There was not one command that he ever left undone. He never lied, he never stole, he never cheated, he never lusted, he never had a sinful attitude, he never was a hypocrite where he would say one thing and act another way or have something different in his heart. He never lacked love for people. He never, he didn't not love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He did that to the max all the time. 
Amazing. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says again, In him we have become the righteousness of God. So Jesus had God's righteousness. He was one with the Father. He was perfectly obedient to the Father in every way. And in him we have received that righteousness. What a thought. There's this wonderful um, vision in the Old Testament book of Zechariah where the prophet sees the high priest standing before the Lord and it says Satan is there as well and Satan is accusing the priest before God and the Lord says to Satan, I rebuke you, Satan. Is not this a stick plucked out of the fire, he says. In other words, quit your accusations against this man. I have rescued this man out of the fire. And in the vision, the prophet says that the high priest had on these filthy, dirty clothes representing his sin. And an angel of the Lord says to those who stood by, he says, remove the filthy garments from him. And God says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments, he says. And he puts a clean turban on his head and clean clothes on his body. And that is a wonderful picture of what God does for us in Christ. We are not righteous before God in ourselves. We've broken all kinds of commandments thousands of times, right? Our garments are muddy, filthy, polluted. But Jesus, he has pure vestments. They're perfectly clean. So God takes Christ's garments puts them on us so that now God views us as being as pure as Jesus is. Did you hear that? Let me say it again because I don't know if y'all are hearing me this morning. God views us as being just as pure as Jesus is. Can you believe that? Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in my Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, if you think about that rightly, it will humble you to the dust. None of us can, can have some claim on some sort of righteousness of our own. The righteousness that we have solely earned by Christ, not by us. And it was given to us. So if we're ever tempted to look down our noses at people, let's just take a step back. And look at ourselves and see where our righteousness came from. 
It doesn't mean we shouldn't call sin, sin. It shouldn't shut our mouths to witness for the Lord because we're not perfect, so I don't have anything to say to anybody else. No, that's not what God calls us to do. It is our duty to do so. We should do those things, but as we do it, we shouldn't do it with any tinge of self-righteousness behind it because we realize that the only righteousness we have wasn't earned by us. It was earned by Jesus. It didn't come from us being such good people. No, we were gifted this righteousness. It was Christ's, and now we have it on our account. Christ actively kept every single one of God's laws and commandments for us because we never could do it on our own. That's his active obedience. So take the analogy from earlier where in Christ's death for our sins, imagine we're in the negative down here. Christ's death for our sins takes us out of the negative, brings us up to the zero mark. Our sins are paid for but we still don't have any positive righteousness in our lives. But Christ's active obedience takes us from zero up to perfection. We now have positive righteousness in our account because of His obedience to the Father. Not ours, but His. So here's one thing that can come out of that. When you're reading your Bible... And you read anything about Jesus being sinless. Stop right there and praise God. Just stop right there and pray and praise God. Because that is the only way you could be saved. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Praise God. So the next time you read about Jesus going into the wilderness... And resisting Satan's temptations, stop right there. Praise God. Because if he would have failed at any one point, salvation is impossible. It would have meant, here's a sinner then. Jesus is a sinner. Only sin he could pay for is his own. Couldn't pay for yours or mine. So stop right there. And pray and praise when you see anything in the Bible about God, about God's Son, Jesus, being sinless. And all of this is just from the good and kind hands of God. That he would design a way for sinners to be made right before God. Not by making them jump through a bunch of hoops that he knows, they can't, he knows that they can't pull off. Or by making them walk this impossible razor's edge their whole life. But he's made it possible for sinners to be right with God by the active and passive obedience of Jesus being credited to their account. Totally out of our hands. It's all him. We can take zero credit for our salvation. That's why we worship him, right? We don't come here worship because he we because we did most of it and he made up for the rest we worship him because we did nothing and he did it all
let me share with you a hymn that highlights these things for us very beautifully. It's written by a man. Maybe if any of you want to have children in the future or other grandchildren, you can suggest this name. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Pretty good one. He wrote this hymn called Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. I don't know if you've heard it before. Let me read you the first stanza. It says this. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Look at that first line with me. Jesus, thy blood. There's his passive obedience. In paying for our sins by dying in our place. And then what immediately follows it? And righteousness. There's his active obedience, earning our righteousness for us. And the writer says, those two things, Jesus' blood and his righteousness, those two things are my beauty, my dress. I have no beauty of my own. I don't have any righteousness of my own, but here it is. It's Jesus' death for me and his righteousness earned for me. And when the world is going up in flames... At the end of the age, midst flaming worlds, I'll be arrayed. That means clothed. I'll be clothed in these two things, his blood and his righteousness. And I'll be able to lift up my head to heaven where where my Savior sits and thank him for what he's done for me. Isn't that beautiful? Let me read the rest of it to you because it's so good. It says, second verse, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these, these being Jesus' blood and righteousness, fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. When from the dust of death I rise, To claim my mansion in the skies, even then this shall be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. There's his active and passive obedience. Once again, he both lived and died for me. Jesus, be endless praise to thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me, a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. One more verse. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. That's a good one. That's a good one. So brothers and sisters, friends, family, in Christ, let's worship Christ every day for this, that he has secured our salvation through both his active and passive obedience. What a glorious person the Lord Jesus is, isn't he? What a design by God to save in this way. What a 
infinite blessing from the Spirit that would cause us to be born again, to, be, to, to even see the truth of this and be counted as one of God's children. I must say, if you've never come to Christ in faith, what are you waiting for? Better deal? There's only one way to be right with God. There's not a buffet of choices, right? All paths, contrary to what you will hear out in the world, all paths do not lead to the same place. They don't all lead to God. The only way to be right with God is through His Son's death and His Son's righteousness. You must repent of your sin, turn from your sin, turn to Christ in faith. Trust Him for salvation. And there's no hoops to jump through. There's no test to pass. Just believe what God says. And turn from your sins and trust Christ alone to save you. And that's exactly what He will do. He makes you eternally right with Him. I pray if you've felt God pulling you, drawing you, I pray that you'll just ask Him right there where you sit to save you. If you have questions, there's Christians here that will talk to you. I will be glad to talk to you. We would consider it a privilege to talk to you about that. Amen. Let's pray, and then we will enjoy taking the Lord's Supper together, okay? Father, we thank you for your gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus that you would offer a way of salvation to us vile, rebel sinners. We can't hardly believe it. And then to go as, as far as you did to secure it for us, almost unfathomable. You sent your only son, the Lord Jesus, He earned our righteousness as well as paid for our sins for all time. We're not saved by our own works, but we are in a very real sense saved by His works. We praise your name this morning. And as your people take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, would you impart grace to our hearts just to better Appreciate all that you have done to secure this salvation for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.